Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Catherine, you're opening up your case files on Virginia Tech today. Let's dive in. What can you tell us about this case? Our discussion today is going to focus on something that really has come to symbolize all of college and university campus shootings. So much to talk about. Virginia Tech is one that I know and have heard of, but it did happen over a decade ago now. So I'm really a bit fuzzy on the details. What can you tell us about the actual day and how it unfolded? Okay, so this shooting is actually two shootings. And that's one of the reasons why it changed the laws. Something that very rarely does a shooting have that kind of an effect. So this killing began at 7.30 in the morning on April 16th, 2007 in Blacksburg, Virginia. That's about four hours south of where I live near Washington, D.C. The shooter killed two people in a dormitory on the college campus. And then two and a half hours later, he chained the doors shut in a classroom building on the campus and he began shooting students and faculty. In all, 32 people were killed and another 17 wounded at least. Six other students were even injured when they jumped from a second floor classroom window. In the end, the shooter committed suicide right as the police were entering the building. Another tragic incident. So two things do jump out at me straight away. And the first one is, is it very common to have two shootings tied together? But before you answer that, Catherine, I want to sneak in another question. What is happening in those two and a half hours? Because presumably the college dorm was close to the college campus. So it wouldn't have taken two and a half hours to get there, surely. You're right. It didn't. But to your first question, is it common to have two shootings? in these kind of situations, I would say it's probably more common than most people think because these type of killings sometimes uh, start someplace else because they often begin with the killing of a spouse or a family member or even somebody's entire family. Sometimes killers just uh, say in their mind that they want to spare their family what they're going to have to go through or their family couldn't help them and they don't want their family to agonize over the embarrassment or the aftermath. Well, if you remember, the Sandy Hook shooter killed his mother first before he went to school, killed her in her bed. And I'll say this, it's something to consider when you think about whether or not you should see something and say something. Because the parent might not call, but you're the cousin or you're the neighbor or you're the friend. You might be saving somebody in your own family's life. Right, good point. With all that said, it was not the situation here. And in this case, these two shootings appeared to be unrelated. And it really wasn't until ballistics results came back through on the firearms and the bullets that were fired, where the two events were eventually tied together. But it's relevant because the first two people who were a freshman girl 
And then a man who lived in the dorm room next to her who came to the disturbance. And so the first two people were his first two victims, but then he left the building. The killer, it turned out, lived in the dorm room next door. And I know you asked me about the two and a half hours, and we'll get to that, I promise. So you're going to leave me hanging. Well, in that case, let's go back to what you mentioned earlier, which was that this case actually changed laws and the way the information was shared. So we know that the two people were killed in the dorm room, and then there was that whole two and a half hour period in between that he then is able to walk into a classroom full of students still. So why were those students, I guess, still there is my question. And did that have something to do with the law changes and that lack of communication? You are right. The campus and the Blacksburg Police Department, which is the city that the college is in, responded to the first shooting and they were actively working the shooting. But there was a decision made by many to not broadcast the information broadly on the campus. I think they were looking for answers. And I think there was a time period when they thought that the female student who was killed, that it was her boyfriend. And so they went to look for the boyfriend. That's a lesson that we all have to constantly remind ourselves in law enforcement is look up and look for the other possibilities because you may think this is definitely the solution, but it may not be. The fact that the university was involved in the decision not to release anything is in the after action that was done, there were actually emails from university personnel that said, make sure this doesn't get out. What? Hold on. The, the university actually emailed that. Right. Yeah. That was with an internal communication within the university. I think there was a time period of, we don't know a lot, so we're not going to panic people. So in that time, the shooter went back to his dorm room, cleaned up changed clothes, deleted his campus email account, destroyed his computer somehow, packed all his things up for his next killing spree, and headed towards the other uh, location where he was going to do the shooting, which he had pre-planned for, and stopped at the post office on the way. So he's just murdered two people, and now he's off to buy stamps? What the heck? Why is he at the post office? Well, very significant. Let me just sew through a few other threads in this tapestry. So while police were actively working the shooting, they begin to get word that there is a second shooting that's occurring across campus in a building called Norris Hall. The killer had chained shut the Norris Hall doors by looping through those push bar handles that still exist on so many uh, older buildings where you just give it a push and the whole bar is across the back of the door. So those doors were unlocked 24-7. There were no locks on the classroom doors. There were no locks on the office doors. Uh, it was a very open campus. And I'll tell you, in the aftermath, the university spent 750000 replacing doors on campus. So they never had to face that fear again. But also, in his effort to deter police, he left a bomb threat on one of the doors. And I got to tell you, a faculty member who found that note handed it to a janitor and told him to take it to the dean's office. So the bomb threat note got lost somewhere and was never really ever taken very seriously. Is that right? That's correct. Bomb threats are one of those things where unless they're phoned into a police department, how seriously does somebody take it? We don't know. The FBI, law enforcement, police departments, they take bomb threats very seriously. Not because uh, they all happen, but because if they do happen, it's bad. So in this case, it sounds like they just got lucky that there wasn't actually a bomb. Can you give us some more details about what happened in that second shooting that was in the classrooms? I can. 
And I, I want to be cautious and careful uh, not to re-victimize people, not to re-traumatize people. This was a very complex crime scene. Survivors reported that he looked into some classrooms first, appearing to pick out the ones that might have the most students inside. And in a matter of about 11 minutes, he entered four classrooms and also shot at people in the hallway. And he killed most of the people that were inside those classrooms that he shot in. So the killer entered a couple of the classrooms more than once. He came back to see who else he could shoot in some of those classrooms, which is how horrible he was. Many in the classroom ducked down on the floor or underneath their little desks. Two professors who uh, heard the disturbance from above came down to the floor where the shooting was occurring on the second floor. Both of them were shot. One of them died. So in all, in this 11 minutes, we think he shot about 170 rounds out of his weapons. But afterwards, we look at how bad this could have been. He had another 200 rounds of ammunition with him. Yeah, you can do a lot of damage with 200 rounds of ammunition. Right. We were fortunate that the police were able to breach the door and stop the shooting. So with two and a half hours break between those first two murders in the dorm room, he's then killed 30 people and injured a further 17. All of that in 11 minutes. It's so much damage in such a tiny pocket of time. It's just astounding. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, Catherine, is I know that you live in Virginia and you know, I think we've spoken before that my U.S. history is a little bit scratchy, but I have to tell you that my U.S. geography, it's even worse. So how close was this to where you live? So the university, which we all call Virginia Tech, is really, its real name is Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, which you can see why we call it Virginia Tech. Yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful. It is indeed. It's a one highway, four hours south of my house. So many kids that my kids went to school with go to Virginia Tech. It is part of our community here. And in fact, two of the women who were killed in one of the classroom buildings were both graduates of the high school right here where my daughter was a junior at the time. One woman had played basketball and she was uh, there to play basketball for Virginia Tech. Another was a kind of a standout in the theater. Rima Samaha was the theater student and Aaron Peterson was a basketball player. So it turned into a uh, very personal event because not only was my daughter there, but she was on the newspaper and she wrote stories for the newspaper in Chicago where her dad lives. So my whole town was really in a spiral. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital or maybe you just lost it well stubforge.com is here to change that imagine this tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal because each ticket from stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that ticketmaster uses 
and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. I have a book out um, called Stop the Killing, and a whole chapter is devoted to Christina Anderson, who was there. She's the most seriously injured survivor of the Virginia Tech shooting. And I wanted Christina's story to be told in her own words, because I, I think that she can answer questions that I just couldn't possibly answer about what it'd be like for the parents and for the students and how they must have been so scared. Virginia Tech has students that are international students. It's a big campus. Parents had no idea whether their kids were in a French class or an engineering class or a geography class and whether they were involved. And they didn't know in some cases for hours. That chapter that you spoke of, is just one of many incredible chapters in your book. And it really does transport you to the moments that you'd actually probably never normally hear about straight afterwards. In particular, the moments that she actually recounts hearing the first responders talking around her. It's a very powerful chapter. I want to tell you one other thing that I don't always uh, share. The shooter in this case, he lived a few blocks away from me. And he had gone to school at the same high school as my child. And so not only was my community inundated with the loss of so many uh, students, although there were two from my high school here who were killed, there were also students from neighboring high schools that were killed. But then in addition to that, the world media came to the town I live in because the shooter lived a few blocks from my house. So it became a spiraling circus of craziness in a way that I helped me to understand better what communities go through. So it's a case that you were so personally connected to. Is that unusual for FBI agents or do people often go into the FBI because they have a connection to something quite drastic like this is? No, I think they go in because they want to serve the community and I think some people are driven to it. I'll tell you where we saw it the very most in the United States. We had a tremendous number of people who were impacted by 9-11 and felt that they had a calling to serve. I want to revisit the comment that you made about the killer stopping at the post office. I'm just trying to get my head around that because it's after the murder of the two first victims in the dorm room and on the way to Norris Hall. Can you tell me what the hell was all that about? I can. I'm not hiding it, I promise. He really spent that time cleaning up and gathering his things, but then he went by the post office and he mailed a number of written documents and a videotaped message to a major U.S. news network. Ah, oh, now I get it. And yeah, so the reason I wanted to bring it up separately is because of what occurred because of that. So I should say, first of all, they immediately contacted the FBI and released the information to the FBI, which is always the right thing to do. And I have another whole different experience where 
a network came to the FBI and it helped us solve a bad situation in Washington. That was ABC. The reporter who I knew very well called me and said, I just talked to your shooter who's in the lobby. Wow. I called there. He answered the phone and they shared all that information with us. And that was a situation where we had a barricaded subject and we had victims that were pinned to the floor, guns pointed to their heads. And yet this network called us and said, hey, here's what you need to know to solve this. And they never shared it on air. And that helped resolve the issue, getting those people out of the building alive. But in this case, the network wasn't in that situation. We had a shooter who was already down and they had a videotape and paperwork from this guy saying, hey, here's what I did and here's why you did it. And it was very rambling. And the network made a decision to air some of it. They took a tremendous amount of grief for it. I mention this now because it resulted in days and days of coverage about this shooter And it wasn't just this network. When one does it, then everybody does it. This subject's photograph was on the front page uh, in Australia, in New Zealand, in London, in Washington, in LA, Chicago, which is just what we don't want to see and what we continue to fight. Let's just stop talking about the subject and giving them that coverage that might create copycat situation, which we know now from research can occur. And I know we're going to be talking in more depth, looking into that contagion effect in later episodes, but the research you did backs up this contagion effect and has some cold, hard stats that go with it. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And it really does. It warrants its own separate uh, discussion and let's do that. So Catherine, what struck you about this particular incident is the most significant piece of information that needed to be shared with the public? Well, there's so much that is relevant with the shooting that can help the public. But I think I work with a lot of businesses. I do a lot of consulting with schools, hospitals, the occasional religious institutions, help them to decide what kind of security is worth the cost. They struggle with spending any money on security when you're talking about what if, right? But years later, when the costs could be ascertained and the Center for American Progress put a value on what it cost the Virginia Tech and the Virginia Tech community, they said $48 million this shooting cost. $38 million of that carried by the university itself. Okay, so help me out. $48 million is a lot of money, but can you break that down a bit for me? I know that you've mentioned the doors, but where else does that money go? A lot of the costs for these shootings go to additional law enforcement, additional services that have to run 24-7 for hours and days and weeks. They also include reconstruction reinforcements to buildings. The um, Navy Yard building, which we talk about in one of our episodes, was shut down for a year while they reconstructed it. So that costs so much money to displace all those people. Here on the campus, additional counselors were hired, additional security was hired. So the community had all these additional costs of personnel. And when something like this happens, people quit their jobs. Then that company has all those HR costs to rehire. So a huge number of additional costs well beyond somebody's funeral and flights in and out of town. And those have to be picked up by somebody. Right. I just wanted to mention one other thing. In the United States, we have an Occupational Safety and Health Administration, we OSHA. And it regulates what businesses could and should do. Companies have a duty to care for anticipated dangers to their personnel. And 
now a shooting is an anticipated danger. So it's actually a law now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is a matter of doing better. It's a legal threshold. By the sounds of it, the students and teachers on the campus were actively kept from knowing that they should be protecting themselves, especially after the first dormitory murders. And you're saying businesses are legally required to protect from foreseeable threats. So what about universities? Because after discovery of the two victims on campus, that would surely be classed as a threat. Oh, yeah. Actually, a university is a business, right? Virginia Tech employs about 13,000 people. So the U.S. Congress passed a law that said universities specifically are required to notify those on campus of any danger immediately so that the campus can lock down. And not only just the campus, but surrounding buildings. If you think about a school that might be in the village, if something's occurring in that school, you want the people in the communities surrounding it to be safe. So it's now standard protocol that notifications must be given immediately and failure to do so, legal action. They didn't tell the people on campus, but word got out elsewhere. And there were a lot of people who knew the shooting occurred. And I can tell you that the local public schools actually went into lockdown outside of the campus, right? The university made a decision to cancel trash pickup on campus. The university made a decision to stop the bank runs on campus where armored cars come in to pick up cash. So Everybody but the students and the faculty, it seemed at this moment, and I know it's easy for me to say in hindsight, but that's just a frightening fact. And I'll tell you, today, social media messages go out immediately. And if you're in a place where your business or your church or your school doesn't have that, find out if they do. You should all be registered. You can opt in to the community text messaging. And when my daughter who lives in Chicago was on a college campus when there was a shooting, I got a notice of it. And I texted her and said, are you okay? And she said, yes, it's nowhere near me. I'm not even on campus. Don't worry about it. So I knew right away. That's how far we've come, which is great. Yeah, I guess how far we've come. But it's just a statement that you've been so close. We can say one degree of separation almost to two mass shootings in the US. That's just a really sad state of play, isn't it? Just how frequent these things happen and how close they can touch everybody's lives. And in your case, twice. Yeah. Yeah, I have actually have been around a lot of them. And understandable when you were working in the FBI and the role that you were, but those two shootings, you weren't actually working in FBI capacity and you were still one degree away from, right? True. Now, listeners of our podcast series know that we never actually use the names of the killers, but you mentioned that this killer had mailed items directly to the media. And I wondered, did that change the way that the media then chose to cover this because they had more information about the killer? Oh, I think it did. I think this is why this case is the most important case for why not to name a shooter. It's quite an emphatic response. It is the ultimate case where the public and the media let the shooter, even in his death, control the narrative. Let me give you an example. I I have in my handy hand a copy of Time Magazine from that time. And I'm not picking on Time Magazine. I love it. And I have it in my hand because I had a subscription to it. On the front cover of the magazine, there are 22 little photographs of the 32 people who died, probably the 22 they could get at the time. And they're very small. They're like an inch and a half. There's a similar page inside in the magazine. But what you would see now, if there was a shooting today, you would not likely see a photograph or you would see a small photograph of the shooter. But inside this magazine, 
you can see on page five, there's a three inch picture with him holding a hammer up and back like he's going to strike somebody on the screen. Then on page 23, there's a seven by four inch. That's big, the size of a, a small book. And that picture, he's holding two guns and he's facing the camera. And then in the main story that covers 23 pages of this magazine, that's how impactful this event was in the United States. 23 pages that mostly shared big uh, photographic images of memorials around campus. But on those pages, there was another two by three inch photo of the shooter with a gun pointed at his head. And to me, most frustrating, a full page of the shooter with the gun pointing at the camera. And the gun is the major part of the photograph. And so it's really pointing at the readers in the story. And six of the 23 pages were all devoted to recollecting killers in, in different places since 1965 and how many people they killed. No names of the people they killed, just number counts. Feels like the media have got that all the wrong way around, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't like to see certainly guns in photographs, but I certainly don't like to see a gun facing the reader, whether it's on television, whether it's on stage. Actually, my daughter was in a, a show this summer because she's a brilliant, talented uh, singer and actress. And she was on stage and there was a scene where somebody had a handgun. And of course, I knew it was inert. But the actor clumsily kept swinging the muzzle of the gun out towards the audience. And it just disturbed me because I'm so uncomfortable with that. And, and I know he didn't mean anything by it, but I think I, we saw it the second night and I said to my daughter, please tell him not to do that because he's re-traumatizing people who, are, who might have dealt with it. <laughs> it's probably something he had totally not thought of. Yeah, definitely. And I know news outlets, they're running these stories, they're looking for ratings because that's the nature of the business and you can't fault uh, the news business for trying to make money so that they can stay alive. But talking about how extreme the coverage was, the American Psychiatric Association came out with a public letter four days after the shooting and said to the media, please stop repeating his disturbing writings and showing his videos and showing his photographs that were first aired by the network. The letter said, research on copycats is showing us that the media is inviting copycats. And you're not only inviting copycats, you're re-traumatizing people who are grieving right now. And the, the potential to glorify the shooters and incite these copycats and homicides and other incidents just can't be ignored. So the APA came out specifically with a letter and said, please stop airing it. And I've never seen that before. And did it work? Did they stop? I think they did. They slowed down for sure. And some news agencies made decisions never to broadcast. I think the Canadian broadcasting system never broadcasted anything. But all the major news networks played portions of it and repeated portions of it. And, and I'll say it wasn't just the United States. The killer with his picture with his gun pointed to the viewer was played on the front covers of newspapers across the world. Catherine, before we had these conversations, if I heard about a mass shooting, my natural inclination was to find out about both the victims and the killer's stories. And I think the reason that I felt compelled to do that, to find out about the killer, was fear-based, right? That feeling that knowledge is power. But as I'm discovering, an actual fact in this case, your research shows that the knowledge places the power not in my little hands, but actually more likely to be put into the hands of the potential copycat killers. Have I understood that correctly? No, I think that's exactly what the concern is. That's why we're always cautious about what we say about a killer. Humans are curious 
And we do want to know, but news coverage is finite, even though it seems like it's not. And all of the coverage that covers the front page of the paper is the sensational story that the killer chooses to make up about what he thinks his world was like and his justification. So he actually gets exactly what he wanted in the end. He gets the world talking about him, which in many cases, these are killers who really felt like they were maybe ignored and nobody cared about them and they felt isolated. And when that happened, then they create this vision of how they're going to go out and uh, they're going to tell their story. And then the media and all of us, by sharing it on social media sites, we unwittingly play right into his hand. We become his own propaganda machine, essentially. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to preventing mass shootings and violent crimes, there is actually value in understanding the killer's history. So how do we tread that fine line? And why is it important that the public understand what this killer's behaviours of concern are, Catherine? Well, there is a lot of violence in the world, whether it's knives or whether it's vehicles or whether it's bombs. And so I know in the United States, we struggle with gun violence in part because of the firearms that we have here. But any of this type of violence that's targeted violence is really planned violence. And that's what we can take away, how we can look closer and see what signs, what tells were out there that an offender was telegraphing or that other people might have seen about their future conduct. So he buys weapons or ammunition that they don't normally have. They do a lot of target practicing they don't normally have. 
But it can also be other things like telling people that they've had enough, they're going to take revenge, they're going to get their own way. They might be planning suicide. We definitely hear that. They're telling people that they're going to get their day. Those kinds of statements, you just can't ignore them. So I've got my pen and paper at the ready, and I'm going to try and jot down as many of those see something and say something pinch points that we might hear along the way. So Catherine, take it away. What can you tell me about this killer? There's so, so much. So this killer was born in South Korea. His parents immigrated to the United States when he was eight. He moved to Maryland, which is on the other side of Washington, D.C., from where I am, probably an hour away. And he had, as a baby, troubles in South Korea that caused medical intervention that was so traumatic that he didn't like anybody to touch him. He was very thin and very quiet. So by the time that he was young, even before high school, he was getting treatment for severe depression and anxiety. He had something uh, that the experts call selective muteness, meaning it was really hard to get him to talk at all. His parents spoke Korean and he spoke primarily English. He had a sister who did a lot of translating. He was a typical kid in some ways. He got good grades. He filled out a, a report at one point, said he liked X-Men and action movies and Nicolas Cage, the actor. He was a fan of U2. He was a typical kid. He was a big basketball fan. He followed the Portland Trailblazers. He played video games. And in a school report, he said his favorite food was pizza. So he was just pretty much a regular kid in many ways. But by eighth grade, so like before he entered ninth grade, some of his writings spoke about suicide, homicidal ideations. And after this terrible shooting at Columbine High School, he actually wrote an essay at school that said that he celebrated the fact that shooting occurred and said he wanted to repeat Columbine, is what he wrote in his paper. So in high school, though, he didn't make threats. He did get good grades. But he was considered to be emotionally disabled. He had anxiety and depression. He had this selective muteness. And he had special education plan because of that, what we call an IEP. That plan and his file is chock full of information about the frailty of not only his physical health, but his mental health. He had some counseling. He had conversations off and on with school officials and parents and other medical care officials. So this is all during high school. So are you seeing some things here that jump out with you? Because I know I haven't even gotten to college yet, but can I get a preview of what your thoughts are? Oh, you're putting me on the spot early today. Okay. The first thing that comes to mind is that term leakage. I think I say that pretty much every episode now since you've taught me the word. But the fact that in eighth grade, he was writing homicidal ideations and talking about wanting to repeat Columbine, that's a massive red flag right there. And I don't know if there's a reporting system in place, but I hope there is, whereby a primary school will then pass on that information to the secondary school in subsequent years. The other thing that uh, stuck out was that the high school, it clearly recognized that he had frailty both mentally and physically. So I'd be asking what plans and safety nets are put in place for someone with that background when they leave home for the first time and then move actually to a college dorm by themselves, which, you know, is full of stresses and anxieties, especially if you throw in, you know, that known mental health issues of anxiety, depression, and selective muteness. I don't think that sounds like a recipe for anything good. But again, I am saying this with hindsight, right? Well, it is easier in hindsight. And I think that's also important to remember and why a single piece of information is important to report because it's easy in aggregate to look at things as an investigator and say, ah, there's this, 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 this. And as an investigator, we can tie all that together. But in individuals who are seeing individual pieces, they need to 
see something, say something. I know I sound like a broken record, but our whole business of law enforcement relies on the fact that the uh, public in your country is astute and aware. So let's move on to college because you're right. Though there were communications in the uh, school system here, Fairfax County school system, that allowed for that information to be shared, how much of it was shared from eighth grade to ninth grade to 10th grade, and how closely they were monitoring him from a threat standpoint is really different than the fact that a counselor knew that he was having trouble. So I don't think he was being monitored from a threat standpoint. And that's kind of part of the linchpin. So let's go on to college and say, after college, you're right, he chooses Virginia Tech. It's four hours away. All the counselors, his parents say the school is too big. He shouldn't go down there. He's not going to have the same support system that he has. And that's absolutely true. They send him with the name of a counselor and a number. He never calls that person. So he makes the decision to go down there. And once there, as his typical first year, he has goods and bads. He fights with his roommate over being neat enough. And he has pretty good grades. And the next year in sophomore year, he moves off campus. He's more isolated. His uh, roommate is a senior. He's not around very often. At this time, he's very focused on writing and he's writing a lot. He writes to a New York publishing company and asks them to publish a book, which they reject. He seems dejected by that. Having Being an author myself, I completely understand how dejecting that can be. By his junior year, interestingly, we see him move back on campus and his grades begin to slip. And this English teachers begin to notice his writings are filled with darkness. And they're reporting to their deans that the writing assignments have disturbing violence written into them. One teacher actually has him removed from her class because he read a violent and and upsetting poem out loud in the class, but it wasn't the first thing that he'd done. And so during this time, it seems like everybody was notified at one point or another. The dean of students was told about this. The police were told about it in different instances. The counseling services were told about it. There were many kind of emergency interventions with counseling services. And I say that because I think it's very important in the threat world We talk about somebody assessing a threat, but really this was a question of managing a threat. And that's the final step, threat management. You can't take somebody off a ledge when they want to commit suicide and then say, oh, they're okay now, they didn't commit suicide. If somebody's about to jump off a bridge and you help them not jump off that bridge, they're still running that game in their head and you would help them out. But that's the same situation here. We have a person who is reaching out and talking about violent situations, but the threats aren't being managed, even though there's emergency interventions. And he's even involuntarily committed one evening because he texts his uh, sweet mate and says he's going to kill himself. So parents are never notified because he's an adult. And this university believes that federal privacy laws and education laws prohibit any communications. I'll leave it here to say that's completely wrong but that's something we should talk about in the future. So reports come in that he's taking surreptitious pictures of other students on campus. He's harassing at least three women. He even went to one of their dorm rooms in disguise. And it gets to the point where she goes to the police, but then she decides not to file a report. They say, why don't you just fill out a complaint so he can be disciplined? And she declines to fill that out. So the subject's file is really getting thicker and thicker. And I'm going to tell you this astonishing fact that's just random. The subject's file disappears when it is mistakenly packed with a bunch of other files 
when one of the clinical employees, a doctor, I think, leaves Virginia Tech, and it's actually found several years later in his files, and he returns it. But I will say a year before the shooting, all of his creative writing teachers knew stuff was going on. And, and one of the creative writing teachers noted the only thing that was remarkable about his writing was how violent it was. So just a last couple of points. Six months before the shooting, he submits a play for one of his classes. It's a play about a man who hates his classmates and plans to kill himself and shoot others at the school. Wow, if that isn't foreboding. By now, he's a senior at the university. Two months before, he purchases his first gun. He waits 30 days, the requisite time under federal law, to buy a second gun. He begins purchasing ammunition day after day. I tracked at least seven times that he was out buying ammunition. And I will say, both guns legally purchased because his mental health problems were never reported into the federal system that would have prohibited him from being able to get those guns. So he got two guns. Uh, One of those guns, I'll tell you, was the same gun issued to me when I finished at the FBI Academy. Wow, there is a lot in there to unpack. The thing that screams out at me is it feels like everyone knew things. And actually, I want to ask you this because clearly several things were reported for them to have been emergency interventions taken, but it resulted in sadly him being cleared of being a danger to himself and and even worse, being a danger to others. But is this always the case until a crime has been committed? Because what can authorities actually do? Even if they deem him to be dangerous, They can't lock him up for a crime that they think he might commit. So does it go back to, what did you call it? Threat management. You're right. It is. It's threat assessment and threat management. And I think that's one of the big takeaways from this university experience. But definitely, you're right that because somebody's dangerous, you can't lock somebody up because you think he might do something because he writes about it. There's just not enough there. Okay, well, we're still unpacking the history. His behavior seems to start escalating with the harassment of multiple women. So who is that information going to? And if it's going to the university, then surely they're in a position to see the persistent nature of his actions and maybe recognize that it's not just a one-off incident. So even though that last victim doesn't feel like she can press charges, The school presumably has the bigger picture here and could have acted on that information to maybe protect the students here. Why do you think that doesn't get reported? So when the police have a person who's under duress and they take that person in for a medical evaluation, it's passed off. The police have passed that problem off to somebody else. And I don't mean that as a horrible thing about the police. I'm saying the system is designed to say, okay, you called because your son is being outrageous at home and he's an adult. And then your problem is now the police's problem. And the police picks that person up. And so the police takes the person to the hospital for a medical intervention. Now the police have passed that problem off. And that's pretty much how our system is designed that until a crime occurs, law enforcement needs to get involved and the courts get involved. We really have to rely on the medical community to do the threat assessment and to do the threat management. And I think a lot of times we've seen that the community fails to do that because they don't provide the right financial support for mental health care in any community, which would prevent people from escalating into targeted violence. Let's go back to the violent writing, because 
I'm not a teacher and I'm not a university lecturer, but I imagine that in a creative writing class, I imagine there is a bit of leeway. It's creative freedom of speech. If you've got the likes of someone like Stephen King or even Quentin Tarantino (laughs) in your writing class, for example, then some of their scripts may have been cause for concern. So is this only a marker that we can see in hindsight or should all violent writings be a massive red flag. I think that's an assessment, right? And I think that's what threat assessment is all about. And that's the reason for it, because you don't just look at the writing, you don't just look at somebody's actions. A skill of people who do threat assessment is that they look at all the pieces of information, all the behaviors of concern as a group, and you monitor them and manage them. And you may see that somebody's having some things that might have set them into motion to be more upset, more anxiety, more depressed. In the case of this young man, maybe he was 23 when the shooting occurred, which is astonishing to think that all of that occurred. And he was only 23 when he killed himself. It may have been getting rejected by the publisher. He was quite a prolific writer. He really wanted to write for whatever reason. And he maybe envisioned himself being a certain type of person I think it's that the other parts of his life and his personality didn't indicate that he was participating in life with other people. And that's what the teachers, I think, picked up on is a person who communicates very little, but when he does communicate, it's violent. One of his English teachers had him removed from class. These were not small signs. These were big, huge, waving banners. Right. So definitely a pinch point there, see something or say something. But Let's talk about those bloody guns, because every episode we get there some way or another. You mentioned that if his mental health record had been submitted to the federal government, then he would not have been able to legally purchase those weapons. Now, if we can put aside our opinions on the rights and wrongs of the gun laws in the US, and that's not easy to do, it's a very emotional topic, but if we can just look at the system, that killer is legally and I say legally operating within, the question begs to be answered, who was responsible for reporting to the federal government? Because again, that's another pinch point along the way where somebody could have reported something, right? This is a very challenging problem in the United States for so many reasons. Here's the challenge. They pass a law in Virginia. It's one of 50 states. So Virginia has a law that might require mandatory reporting by healthcare agencies and law enforcement if they know about mental health issues that might be a concern with regard to buying a gun. That's still mandatory reporting in Virginia only. So we have 50 states. Every state develops their own methods on what's reporting. And reporting statistics and information to the FBI is not mandatory. It's voluntary. So what I'm hearing is there's a lack of good practice around reporting mental illness to the authorities because we saw this in the Navy Yard shooting episode four that we did. If the Navy had reported their concerns to the correct authorities, then that killer would possibly not have been able to access those guns legally either. Did I remember that correctly? You did. And I think that's a good point here because people always say, oh, that person and the mental health problems and that's the problem, it's mental health. But National Council on Behavioral Health in the United States has clearly articulated what we all should logically understand, which is mental health care and getting mental health care is clearly not an indicator of violence because getting mental health care is a good thing. And we want people to get mental health care. 
and millions and millions of people do. So it's not an indication of targeted violence. It's when the mental health care disappears. But in this case, this subject had mental health problems that were repeated over time, and they could have been reported. As you mentioned in the Navy Yard case, it just was never reported out of the military that he'd had these situations where he fired a gun into the ceiling and he'd fired out tires and cars. And that kind of recklessness with a firearm is the kind of problem that if it's reported, is going to prevent somebody from being able to legally buy a gun. And I know the naysayers will say, you can always get a gun. But I'm just telling you, most of the guns used in these targeted violence events are legally purchased. Which is a very key point to the whole gun argument, isn't it? They are legally purchased weapons. Something needs to tighten up in the system by the sounds of it. But how did I get on spotting the behaviors of concern? Tell me what I missed. One of the little nuggets that you said early on was my little bell ringing over my head going, yes, 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 yes. There was absolutely indications, indicators that started out in the beginning of his uh, lifetime. He was much more a fragile individual, and we can't blame somebody for being fragile. We're all born differently. And really, this became a situation where you said, did the school know this? Did the college know this? That's the crossover that you mentioned that I thought was the most valuable here because there was a misunderstanding about whether or not Fairfax County could share that information with Virginia Tech. So Virginia Tech had no idea that in eighth grade, this young man was writing about wanting to repeat Columbine. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com.
Catherine, I'm learning that there's normally more than one behavior of concern when we look at these killers' history. So in this particular case, which one sticks out to you the most? We know so many people who knew things, right? And I think this is really, truly a great example of how everybody is hoping somebody else will solve the problem. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Even though the university had a counseling clinic and the local police still had it, he still fell through the cracks. And the people who he harassed didn't want to be bothered or they didn't want to get in trouble or they didn't want to relive it. And I respect that about victims. But for whatever reason, they didn't follow through on things. And the parents didn't want him to go to the university, but he did. And again, not blaming the parents. The man who did this, it's totally his fault. But all of the people along the way let the guardrails down a little bit on the road. And for whatever reason, at a given time, he drove the car off the road. So I really stress again, I don't say it's anybody else's fault, but in hindsight, you might say to me sometimes when we're talking on the phone that it's bloody hard not to see how he was on a path of total destruction. And one of the things that we have changed here in Virginia and a handful of other states is the way that they look at those kind of facts. I feel like this is becoming a pattern of why things aren't reported as well. It reminds me of when you do a thousand piece puzzle and you get that one piece that you look at it at the beginning, you go, I've got no clue how this would fit into the puzzle. It makes no sense. And then by the time you're almost done, that last piece, it fits in. And it's only then that you realize actually how significant that is for the full picture of the puzzle. And the reason I bring that up is because I feel like time and time again in these cases, we've discussed people are holding that piece of the puzzle and not understanding its significance. And it seems to me you can't solve a puzzle when you don't have all the pieces. So for goodness sake, give the puzzle piece to the right people, which is law enforcement, and let them decide how important it is. Have I got that right? You did get it right. And that's fantastic. And I think that you make the exact point that if I had one point I had to make about Virginia Tech, it would be how they did it right in Virginia. And so what the Virginia legislature did in what some other states, again, not anywhere near enough states, did is that they passed a law requiring each school district to set up threat assessment teams all the way down to the elementary schools saying somebody sees something and says something, they have to have a place to give that data. Ten chapters of the 14 chapters in my book have to do with prevention. And some of them specifically have to do with what are you looking for? And then who do you report it to? And that who do you report it to is the threat assessment teams at your school or that are set up at your business, that group of people who can stop and and look at the person as a whole and find out whether or not somebody is, is having a problem in all of their classes or having a problem outside school. So this major change occurred where we have these threat assessment teams who do threat management of facts. And it really created a location where all those facts could come in, even if the police can't individually take every piece because legally they're limited. But right now we really only have a handful of states in the United States that have these mandatory threat assessment teams and and the businesses. I think businesses are doing a good job of beginning to put them together, but everybody should know where to share that information. If you have a kid in a school, figure out where to call to share information because it's got to go to the threat assessment team. If they don't have one, they should set one up. Yeah. And I will say because threat assessment teams is a term that a lot of people don't know, I spent two chapters in the book specifically talking about what they are, how they're set up, 
how to set one up if you need to set one up, where to go for advice on how to set one up. It's there. And I'm not book hawking as much as I'm saying the information is out there. It sounds like I'm book hawking right now. But what I'm saying is the information is out there. Don't let a lack of information on your uh, part stop you from setting up a threat assessment team. Another case that's been packed with information. And as usual, we're going to round out with our two questions. Firstly, what are the hard lessons that we learned from the Virginia Tech shooting, Catherine? I think that I'm always hesitant on a hard lesson because I feel like I'm blaming somebody and I don't mean to blame anybody. I'm just saying, let's learn from it, right? I think people who thought, if I share this information, if I follow through on this, I'm going to get somebody in trouble. They were scared to share the information and I think they were wrong. And I'm talking about telling people on campus that a shooting had occurred. Though emails were sent out to the people on campus, the first one went out to the campus two and a half hours after the first shooting, probably just about the time that Shooter was chaining the doors together. That's when the first message went out. And that message said, a gunman is loose on the campus. And then probably by the time he was raising his gun to his head in the classroom where students were learning French, the fourth email went out. And that said, oh, we believe that the Shooter is on the campus and please take cover. Well, okay, 17 of the 18 people in that French classroom were already shot. What we got out of that federal law was passed saying that they must immediately notify uh, students, faculty, people on campus. Businesses don't have those same policies. More of these shootings occur on businesses. Businesses should have those same policies. So the second question, what are the moments of incredible humanity, bravery and courage that we saw at Virginia Tech? I think two things. One, the quick action of those who managed to survive. So we talk about run, hide, fight and how people are scared when they run away. But two students chose to leave a classroom, ran down the hallway. The shooter fired at them and they survived. They weren't hit. So it does work. At nearly the same time that those students ran down the hallway, another uh, teacher and a student peeked out of a classroom, recognized what was going on. They went back into their classroom and they made a decision to barricade. And they pushed things in front of the door. And there were, I believe, 10 people in that room. They all survived. So even though the killer came back, he never was able to get into that door. That's because those people were going to fight to save their lives, and they did a great job of it. And after the shooting, I would say this additional thing. It was really the resilience. The police officers who had to shoot through the doorway to get into the building and were in the building in 10 minutes, we know he had more rounds left over than he had when the police came. They think that he probably killed himself when he heard the police blast through the door downstairs. So the fast work of the Virginia Tech Police Department, the Blacksburg Police, they probably saved a lot of student lives. And that resilience of the community, Christina Anderson graduated from college and all of those kids who came back to school, the parents who had confidence in the community, it was so traumatic, but they really came through and the resilience of the community, I think is my my takeaway on a good result. Wow. Yeah. It takes its own kind of special bravery to be able to be resilient and come out of that. It's incredible. Yeah. I want to just share one more story about hope in the darkness. One of the classrooms that the shooter went into, Professor Labrescu was there and he was a a citizen of Israel. He'd immigrated from Romania and he had lived uh, as a Jew in Romania during World War II and was able to come to the United States. So he had survived the Holocaust and the horrors that went on Uh, during that time. He was teaching an engineering class on the second floor. He was 76 years old. And 
his fortitude and what he had gone through in his younger life made him mentally so strong that when the shooting started, he and another graduate student went to the door. Doors had no locks. They went to the door and held the door so the shooter couldn't get in the door. And he instructed his students to jump out the classroom windows. And they did. Oh, my gosh. And they survived because of it. And he was killed because of it. Oh, no. So is a graduate student. Nearly every student in the classroom survived. Just give that a moment to sink in. He survived the Holocaust. He's seen more than his share of atrocities in his lifetime. And then when confronted with another one, he places himself in harm's way with that amazingly brave graduate student to save all those lives. Both of them are incredible selfless humans. Do you know how many people were actually saved that day because of their actions? I don't have an exact number, but I know there were seven people injured when they jumped out the windows. There were others who weren't injured. So there were at least a dozen people in the classroom. Catherine, what would you like to leave us with as your final message today? I think maybe my final message is if you are in this kind of a situation, make Professor Labrescu proud. Do what you can to survive. Don't ever give up. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it mens rea the guilty mind it's the intent needed to prove certain crimes such as murder Join me, your host Sinead, as I explore the stories of missing women, abusive husbands, jealous brothers, and the silence of the Irish countryside. Then follow these stories to the historic buildings of the UK and Ireland for the legal argument to prove guilt. 
Mens Rea releases new episodes every second Sunday. So, for true crime from the Emerald Isle, join me. And until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.